Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a treasure. Psalm 37, and we're going to read the whole psalm here, so starting in verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet in a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. In the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so that you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his land or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself out like a luxuriant tree in its native, native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, or the, will have an end. The end of that man will be peace. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed, and the end of the wicked will be cut off. 
But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen. So, Psalm 37. Um, There's probably 50 sermons that could be preached uh, from this psalm, but I kind of wanted us to look at some major kind of themes that kind of come out over and over again in it. This psalm is given to us by David in his old age. He says, I've been young and now I'm old. And so there's no prayers that are offered in this psalm. It's just his observations about what he's seen, the dealings of God with men. Um, and he's just kind of stating his fact and you know, what he's seen. And at the same time, exhorting the people of God. And the context seems to be um, the righteous are in a fretful state. Or he, he knows people that are fretting, they're disturbed, they're discontent, and they're discontent because they are witnessing, they're seeing the prosperity of the wicked. You see that in, uh, in verse 7, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. In verse 35, I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxurious tree. So the people are seeing these people that are prospering. And he begins the psalm saying, do not fret because of evildoers, be not envious toward wrongdoers. So there's a temptation uh, to envy the the wicked that are prospering and so that's what he's dealing with in this psalm is uh, this reality that can creep into our lives in the christian life and the cure to it so i've titled this message a cure for fretting and i want to begin by asking you a question have you ever been brought into such a state as this i mean of having a fretful spirit i mean where you're disturbed where um you see something that someone else has, and it begins to work on your mind and bother you in your soul, and you're, you're, you start complaining against God, and why don't I have this, Lord, or, you know, what's going on here? Distress, worry, anxiety over your present circumstances as you see what others have that you don't. I mean, has it ever been so bad in your own life where you've been tempted to actually depart from God? Because the truth is, I've known other brothers and sisters that have told me about times such as this in their life, and even experienced it in my own life, when I've been tempted to depart from God while in such a state of mind as this, a fretful state. The fact is this, that the Christian life is hard. It involves things like self-denial, death to self, sacrifice, and in many ways, it is an uphill journey. It's an uphill battle following the Lord in this world of sin. And the devil knows this. And at weak points, at some points in your life, will begin to come in like a flood and tell things to you, point out, begin to point out other people to you, and he'll begin to push at that weak spot. Look at so-and-so. They seem to have it all together financially. No struggles, plenty in the bank. They get whatever they want, and you, you are left with, look, you're trying to follow the Lord, and you, you don't have very much. You're left with little. Or perhaps it's singleness that troubles you. You see, you see people in the world, look how easy it is. I mean, they can get together, they can date, they, they can hook up, there's no problems. But here I am waiting on the Lord, following the Lord, and you know nothing's happening. You know, And you begin to envy them. Um, or maybe it's a chronic illness, and you see all your coworkers at work and how easy they seem to have it, and the Lord has let you suffer with this thing that's been persistent in your life, troubling you. Perhaps it's perceived freedom that worldly people have. You start to believe lies about, you know, lost people. Maybe they really are the happy ones. I mean, they, they get whatever they want. They get to pursue their pleasures. And, you know, we're denying ourselves, following the Lord, renouncing earthly pleasures. 
I'm walking on this difficult path, Lord. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's not being able to have a baby, you know, and you see how easy people in the world seem to have kids. Lord, where are you in this thing? You know, the fact is that this, these things can creep in and begin to work on you, begin to work on your mind, and you can give into it and begin to get into such a state as the psalmist is warning about fretting because of evildoers. I have a good, I know a good brother in Christ. He told me about a time when he was in college, and I mean, he, he just, he felt under attack, you know, I mean, just his mind constantly thinking about the pleasures of the wicked and how, you know, how he, he was envying them. He wanted that, you know, and was tempted almost to go all the way back to it. And he, he decided, I'm going to call up my pastor. He met with him. They sat down together and read Psalm 73, and, you know, both of them were just weeping, you know, thinking about this thing. You know, he, the psalmist says, it was troublesome in my sight. Uh, you know, and, and he's perplexed until he came into the house of God and perceived their end. You know, and you begin to see things as God sees things, and it deals with it. In my own life, I can remember after being a Christian for one year, I just I got to the point um, where I thought, man, this this is hard. <laughs> I mean, to follow Christ, this is difficult, and I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I, I, I'm going to give this thing up. But thankfully, the Lord would not let me go. The devil is always seeking to ruin our contentment in Christ, to shake our composure, rob us of joy, and bring us, bring us into a state of unbelieving vexation. He does so. How does he do so? Well, according to the psalm here, it's by getting our eyes off of Christ and off of eternity and onto the prosperity of the wicked, onto the temporal, right? You're, 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 you're living the Christian life. You're looking to Jesus. You're thinking about eternal things. And then you start believing lies. You start, you start taking the gaze away from there and looking at other people and what they have and the earthly success and all these things and temporal things start to become bigger in your mind than eternal things. So David in his old age, he wants to encourage us not to give in to these lies but to press on following God. And he gives us some strong medicine here in these verses to cure this unholy discontentment. And the first point I want us to consider is this. Consider who you are envying. What does it say? Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. It's bad enough that you're envying wicked, wickedness, wicked people. But look at their end. What does it say here? Just look through these verses. Verse 2. They will wither quickly like grass and fade like the green herb. Verse 9. Evildoers will be cut off. Verse 10, they will be no more. Verse 13, they're mocked by God as he sees their day coming. That is the day of judgment. Verse 17, their arms shall be broken. That is their power, their ability to get whatever they want. Verse 20, they vanish away. Verse 22, they are cursed by God. Verse 38, they will be altogether destroyed. So I want you to ask yourself a question. Do you want what they have? Because if you want what they have, you get their end too, right? Cursed by God, altogether destroyed. Brethren, if, if we were to think of ourselves like cows kind of in the pasture of life, you know, don't be envious of that big, giant, fat cow that always gets what he wants, right? You know, you know why he's being fattened, right? It has, it's not a good end where he's going. Likewise, we should not be envious of the wicked that always get their way or always get what they want because we know their end. Do not envy those that, who don't have Christ. We should pity them. 
right? If you could walk a day in their shoes, feel the anxieties in their heart, feel the gnawing emptiness. I mean, lost people don't have God. They don't have joy in their They have no joy. They have no real or lasting joy. The selfishness, the absence of peace, you would not envy them. I mean, you would not. You'd say, take me back. <laughs> I'd rather go back in the hard road of following Christ. It's much... It's his, his burdens are not, his commands are not burdensome compared to the weight that these people are living in. Or fast forward to the end of their life and see them terrified on their deathbed without hope. Would you envy them, would you envy them then? I mean, seeing them there terrified, I mean, facing eternity with no certainty of where they're going, no hope. You see, death tests whether what we've trusted in can really save us. I mean, it's, the, it's kind of the last, the final test. You know, are we going to triumph? Are we going to be rejoicing, trusting the Lord and say, yeah, Christ has carried me and he's, gonna, he's carried me thus far and he'll carry me through to the end? Or the things that other people have trusted in their wealth, you know, or their success or their, the praise of man, all that stuff, the things they thought they were living for that could save them, you know, that could give them meaning in life. It's fleeting. It's gone there on their deathbed. But we as Christians need not fear. If we've walked with God in life, he'll carry us in death, right? So that's the first point. Consider the end. He, he mentions this like nine times, the end of the wicked. Don't, don't envy them because look, look what's going to happen to them. Second point, fretting will not do you any good. Verses uh, 7 and 8 here. In the middle of seven, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Ask yourself this, what benefit am I getting by remaining in such a state? And the answer is there's no benefit. Is, is it not miserable? I mean, does it not grieve the Holy Spirit? Does it not leave you empty and joyless? Matthew Henry said this, he said, fretfulness and envy are sins that are their own punishments. I mean, <laughs> if you're in such a state, it's punishment itself. I mean, it's miserable. Spurgeon said, fretfulness lies on the verge of great sin, and that as you would dread outward sin, tremble at inward repining. I mean, does, does falling into adultery sound like a horrible, terrible thing to happen in your life? He says, as you would dread that big outward sin, Dread being caught up in such a state as this and in the heart, you know, I mean, of fretting against God, repining, wanting to turn back, discontent with God. The psalmist here says, fretting leads only to more sin. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. More unbelief, more shadows cast upon God's character. It basically leaves you like a sitting duck, right? I mean, if you're in such a state as this, you are susceptible to temptation. The devil comes in there. You're, you're, a, you're willing, able to believe lies easily. You, you have this, this uh, attitude against the Lord about his providence, his dealings with you in your life, and you feel justified when you sin. God's wronged me in this way, therefore it's okay that I do this thing. It's a downward, miserable spiral that, if not repented of, leads to destruction. Which is why the psalmist here, he says, cease it, forsake it, forsake this anger, this unrighteous anger against the Lord and his providence. Don't fret, do not fret. It's an attitude that has to be repented of and renounced. <coughs> so that's the second point. Fretting only leads to more sin. It won't do you any good to remain in such a state. 
Third point, faith cures fretting. So if the problem came in by us taking our eyes off of Christ and eternity and heaven and onto the earth and the prosperity of other men or what they have and we don't, if that's where the problem came in, then surely the solution is the opposite, right? I mean, it's, it's to, to, to set our gaze back heavenward, back upon Christ. Let's uh, look at these verses here, verses 3 through 6. Trust in the Lord, so faith, trust, and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. He said just, just focus on cultivating faithfulness, following the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God will take care of that which concerns you. You can, you can trust in him. Delight yourself in him. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He'll do what you cannot do. <laughs> He'll meet your needs. So faith cures fretting. I like this quote from Spurgeon. He said, Sight is cross-eyed and views only things as they seem. Hence her envy. Faith has clearer optics to behold things as they really are. Hence her peace. So he's saying you don't trust you don't trust your sight. We walk by faith, right? Not by sight. You don't trust what seems to be, but we're we're living our life upon unseen realities, upon the word of God, the way God says things really are. As we give ourselves to God, resign our wills to Him, delight in Him, commit our way to Him wait upon him, he will meet our needs. He, he's sufficient, right? He's, he is all that we need. And in fact, the things that we think that we so desperately need or that we deserve to have, many times the Lord keeps those things from us, right? So that we might learn to find in him our all in all, our treasure. Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. That's an amazing verse. I mean, every circumstance. Think of our sister suffering in Asia. I trust by God's grace she was content in every circumstance. It does not matter what your circumstance is. You can live and, and have an overflowing, abundant life right where you are because of Jesus. If you trust in him, you're committing your way to him, delighting in him. Why? Because he's the fountainhead. He's the source of it all anyways. All the, everything else is changing, it's coming, it's going, it's passing away. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever, right? Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Why? Their little is blessed and their abundance is cursed, right? I mean, it's better, better to have a little bit in a tiny house where the love of Jesus is present there than in a giant mansion with people that are constantly bickering and fighting and selfish. I mean, it's true. The Bible really is true. It's better to grow up in that tiny house poor, having parents that love the Lord Jesus, than in a mansion. God will take care of you if we trust him, right? Verses 23 through 25. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. God will take care of you. If you put your life, you put your needs in the hands of God, God will take care of you. I mean, he will meet your every need. He will provide for you. 
verse 25, he says, he'll, we shall never be forsaken. And I think that's one of the things that has been most encouraging to me about some of these accounts we've read from our sister in Asia is just that God is with his people, right? I mean, that was the most encouraging thing to me is just his, his manifest presence there with her and how he won't leave us. I mean, that's taking it to the extreme, you know, I mean, of horrible torture, persecution. God is with his people. Or take, it, take yourself to your deathbed. God is with his people. You have in God what you can never lose. I mean, in our own life, have you not even proved it true? I mean, have there not been times where you've been given two choices? You can follow the Lord and be faithful or take an easier route that is not right or, you know, that you know would be dishonoring to the Lord. And if you, if you follow the Lord, it's like the next week or something, someone gives you a gift or it's like God makes up for it. You know, I mean, God will meet your needs if you trust in him. We've proved it true in our own life. Never forsaken. You know, he says here, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I like that. You know, I mean, it's like, it's possible to fall in the Christian life. It's, false, it's possible to fall into this state and be stuck in this state for a while. But if you belong to God, he says, you're not going to fall headlong. You're not going to go all the way down. Luther has this quote. He said, we must be up again for God catches him by the hand and raises him again. I like that. Snatches him. <laughs> Starts going down, snatches him by the hand. He must be up again. A king will not lose his jewels, nor will Jehovah lose his people, said Spurgeon. So that's uh, the third point there. Faith cures fretting. And the last point is this. We should be looking toward our future inheritance. Look at some of these verses. Verse 9, But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Verse 11, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Verse 18, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. Verse 22, For those blessed by him will inherit the land but those cursed by him will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land, verse 29, and dwell in it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. So it's like he's saying this thing over and over again to him. The land, you're going to inherit the land. Don't envy the wicked and their tiny little portion in this life. Why? You're going to inherit heaven one day. You're going to be in the presence of the king. You're going to be with Jesus Christ forever. We are going to be with him and soak in his radiant glories, the sunshine of his love forever. I mean, would you think it a strange thing for a man who is going to inherit millions to go to a, a play with actors and actresses up there, and he's, he's envying and jealous of this guy that's dressed up as a king with all of his pomp, and he'd say, that's ridiculous. It's the same thing in this life. I mean, if, we're to, if we envy wicked people and what they have, it's foolish. It's, it's a play. You know, it's going to be over. The close of the play is going to be over. We have the real thing. We have the inheritance. One moment in heaven will make all of the prosperity of the wicked seem as nothing, right? I mean, it'd be rubbish. One moment in heaven, and you'd say, why did I, why would I ever have thought the way that I thought? Like, what? that's crazy. It's madness. It's insanity. 
The pleasures of the wicked are temporary, but eternal are the rewards of grace. So if your heart is full of worry, anxiety, fretting over circumstances, I can tell you one thing for sure, you're not meditating on heaven. I mean, you can't have both of those, those things at the same time. If you're, if you're contemplating what God has in store for you. I mean, it, it is worth it. Whatever it costs, whatever self-denial. I mean, you may be single the rest of your life, or you may never have a child, or you may never get these things. It doesn't matter, ultimately. What matters is following Jesus Christ and making it to heaven. You know, not giving in to those lies, not, not departing from God to pursue what you think other men have that you should have. Brethren, we're going to inherit the land. Verse 37 here. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity. Literally, the man of peace will have an end. And a lot of the other translations kind of translate a little bit differently. They say the, the end of that man shall be peace. That's the end. That's the, the end result of that man's life. So he's saying, stop looking at, at the wicked and their prosperity. Mark the blameless man. Look at him. What, what is the end of that man? It's going to be peace. Peace in this life. Peace on his deathbed. Peace in heaven. Peace with God. You know, we, we, we considered earlier just about how terrible it would be to be lost on your deathbed, having an uncertain eternity before you. Um, but think of how wonderful it can be if you have Christ. It's like the last test of faith. It's the last battle. Are you going to be trusting Christ through those, through those hours, rejoicing? Because you can be. I believe it's available for every Christian. Why should it not be? Um, and I wanted to share with you guys, Just I finished my Martin Lloyd-Jones abbreviated version the other night, and um, it ends with his death, of course, and I just wanted to share some of these things with you because it was pretty wonderful thinking about. So he um, it kind of progressively gets nearer and nearer. He, he's excited about death, actually. He's, he's, talking, he's contemplating angels, how the angels came and... and uh, carried the poor man to Abraham's bosom, and he was, saying, he was saying that he believed that the righteous shall be in the company of angels at the moment of death, uh, which is an encouraging thought to think about. Um, but he was, he was looking forward to it and trusting God. He had seen other people die. He saw that, that older gentleman die at Sandfields. Um, you know, he was barely conscious in his last moment. He, he leaps up in his bed and has a smile on his face and then lays back down on the bed and dies. So he had seen things like that in his life, and so he was looking forward to this, I think. Um, so this is taken up at the very end of the book. On February 19th, his voice weak and husky, he spoke of being much the same. It was our last conversation, for in the following week he gradually lost the strength and breath with which to speak, and communication with the family had to continue by a nod of the head or by a look or a sign, and by one or two brief notes on a piece of paper. Among his last audible words were those spoken to his consultant, Grant Williams, who visited him on February 24th. When Mr. Williams wanted to give him some antibiotics, MLJ shook his head in disagreement. Well, said his doctor, when the Lord's time comes, even though I fill you up to the top of your head with antibiotics, it won't make any difference. His patient still shook his head. I want to make you comfortable, more comfortable, Williams went on. It grieves me to see you sitting here, weary and worn and sad, quoting Bonar's well-known hymn. That was too much for MLJ. Not sad, he declared. 
not sad. It's like he couldn't bear the guy to think that he was sitting there sad. You know, it's like he had to say that those last few words, not sad. The truth was that he believed the work of dying was done and he was ready to go. Last night, Grant Williams wrote to MLJ's doctor on February 25th. He refused to take any antibiotic, could hardly talk, and I think will die very shortly. I think he's very lucid and he knows exactly what he wants to do. At one point in these last few days when his speech had gone, as Elizabeth sat down beside him, he pointed her very definitely to the words of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, which begin, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When I asked him, says Elizabeth, if that was his experience now, he nodded his head with great vigor. So he, he couldn't even speak anymore. You know? But he's, he wants her to know, I'm experiencing this right now. The gl- I'm, I'm beginning to taste of heaven right now, far more. This is a transient, momentary affliction. It's nothing. On Thursday evening, February 26th, in a shaky hand, he wrote on a, scrapper, a scrap of paper for Bethan and the family, Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory. The next day he was full of smiles for the little circle who gathered round him. By these and gestures he spoke so clearly that we almost forgot the absence of his voice. By rolling one hand over another and pointing, he might request one of us particularly to speak or clasping his hands together to pray. On Saturday, still in his sitting room chair, he slept some hours and at some other times appeared to be unconscious. At bedtime, it was clear that he was unconscious, and with only Mrs. Lloyd-Jones and Anne present, for the first time there was the problem of not knowing how to get him to the bedroom in the front of the house. This need was met by two kind ambulance men who responded willingly to her call for help and to put him in the bed. There, a little while later, he came round and knew at once what was happening. To Bethan's inquire whether he would like a cup of tea, he nodded, and while she went to make it, Anne prayed with him. He then drank some of the tea as Bethan and Anne sat with him for about half an hour before sleeping. For over 50 years, he had followed Murray McShane's calendar for daily Bible readings, and one of those readings of that day had just ended, February 28th, was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Perhaps the conclusion of that chapter, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, or the words of Anne's prayer were in his consciousness as he fell quietly asleep. We cannot know, for his next awakening was in the land of the blessed. And he quotes Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Amen. So, we should not envy the wicked. You know, we should not be fretting all that we have in, in Christ. Look at the end of the wicked. Look at the misery staying in such a state causes. Trust in the Lord. Commit your way to him. He'll take care of you. You'll inherit the land. You've got heaven coming. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do just thank you for the encouragement of your word and all these truths, Lord, and the promise of heaven. Lord, we pray, bring us on toward that day. Lord, we think of how we're one week closer to being with you and departing from this world. Help us, Lord, to run the race well. Help us not to turn to the left or to the right, Lord, and uh, give in to the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil, Lord, but to follow you and to love you supremely, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.